0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Last week, we primarily looked at what, what a basic definition of the church might be from Scripture. And we looked at the word ekklesia, meaning called out, I mean the called out one, so the early Christians were those that were called out by Christ, by God. We talked about how God has been in the business of calling people out of one estate into a new estate for a very long time, throughout all of Scripture, in fact. And so at a foundational level, the church is all those who have been called by God and come out of an old way of life into a new way of life. God never calls you out of something without calling you into something else. He never says, stop worshiping an idol without saying, worship me, the one true God, the first of the commandments. He never tells you to remove something from your life without telling you also to fill the void that was removed. So you remember Jesus teaching about the woman who swept out a demon from her house And didn't fill it with anything and seven demons came and entered the place where that one demon once resided. And the last estate was worse than how it had begun because the principle of the story is she didn't fill it with anything good. She left it empty, was left empty, and it was filled with something bad again. Jesus calls you into something. And this week, I want to frame out the rest of our summer by talking about what Jesus is calling you and me into. We're going to stand together for the reading of God's Word from John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you can follow along on the screen. This is the Word of God. He, being Jesus, came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us to our own devices and sins. Thank you for loving us when we were unlovely. Thank you for giving us the privilege and even the right to become your children through the work of Jesus. And now as we consider this great calling, we pray that we would be filled with joy and humility in your presence, guide my words and guide guide the thoughts of all of our hearts and minds together. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Amen. When Jesus calls you out of the world, he isn't calling you out of old habits, old sins, old addictions negative and healthy relationships only. That's not the only thing he's calling you out of. When God calls you, he's calling you to something more. All of human history can be framed in by the idea of two families. Two families, two lines of people, starting at the very beginning and going for all of the rest of history. We're living in it right now. The New Testament speaks to this. So does the old. God said this. In Genesis, to the serpent, right after Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. Listen to this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Two seeds, your seed and her seed. Two cosmic families Forever after, in this cosmic battle between light and darkness, the seed of woman, the seed of the serpent. We have two types of seed represented, representing two distinct families, not of blood, but of spirit. The family of God and the family of the devil. You'll remember that in the New Testament, many years later, when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, what does he say to them regarding their lineage, their line? He says, you are like your father, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, no, the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his. When God calls you, when he called me, we were not just called out of old relationships into new relationships. They aren't just relationships. He's called you into A family relationship. He's called you into the church, which is the family of God. The church is the family of God. There is no more pervasive idea in all of Scripture relating to the essence of the church than it is the family of God. And so Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father. We are made sons and daughters of the living God, the Most High. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Heirs of the promise, heirs also, fellow heirs with Christ. In his letter to the church, the Apostle Peter begins by saying this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has called us to be born again. Very familiar language to the Christian. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a big idea here as it relates to the church being the family of God. When God calls us to himself, he doesn't just clean us up. We don't just drop all of our old habits. I remember last week we, we talked about the fact that being called out wasn't just a matter of looking different. We talked about the fact that we ought to look different, but it's, it's not just a matter of looking different to the world. It's a matter of being different. So it's not just a matter of Washing us, cleaning up some of the old bad garbage, it's a matter of being different. The message of the gospel is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we can't come to new life simply by being hosed off. We must be born again. If you were here last Sunday evening, you'll remember remember Parker's sermon to us on Nicodemus. Nicodemus, that religious leader of the Sanhedrin. You must be born again. How shall I? You must be born again. And here's what we need to keep in mind. Births take place in family. Births take place in family. I could go on pointing out many other things that I wrote down and my wife told me to cut. Various proofs from scripture, but for now we're just going to say births take place in families. The church, we all together, is the family of God. Now I'd like to start sketching out for us what our family portrait looks like. What does it mean that the church is a family? What does that mean? We're going to go through ten points, all of which relate to this central truth that the church is a family, and we're going to do so fairly quickly. Ten points. I need to go a little bit fast. We're going to spend more time looking at these later throughout the summer. First, the church is a family that consists of many different members, And I'm going to read a number of passages this morning, at least ten. There's no need to follow along. I'll mention where where they are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are told, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one in the body, and so also in Christ. For by the Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. God's family, the church, the portrait of it looks a lot like your, your, your photo that you took at your last family reunion. There are all types of people here. You know, when I remember on the last day, uh, early on in our church life, I remember one Sunday evening, somebody got up after the service and said, we're all going to stand at the front and we're going to take a photo of the church. And we did. And then the last Sunday, about 10, you know, nine years ago, Uh, the last Sunday we were at our old location I think Ryan Brown said we need another church photo this is our last Sunday in this building and so after the sermon was over Ryan got up on a ladder I believe with his digital camera at the time this big you know and and took a photo of our church family and I gotta say we get up it's kinda funny to look back at those photos and see you know the different stages of life everyone was in there were a lot of different people a lot of different looks a lot of different backgrounds Uh, When I see those photos now, I think about the families and just the, you know, everything having to do with the relatedness of us together. And it's a really, it's a really great thing for me to think back on. It's sort of nostalgic. If you've ever taken a photo at your family reunion, there are all types of people represented. You have, you have young, you have old, you have... Mature and youthful or immature, you have energetic and tired, you may have some bookish types, you may have jockish types, you may have engineers and artists. All races in in the church, uh, the reality is is that we could never, uh, the photos of our family reunions are pale in comparison to the church, all right? There's so many different types of people represented in this room and then beyond this room. in the world. I mean, we just, my wife and I just got back from taking a trip overseas, and hopefully I'll share some stories about some Christians we met overseas, but it underscored to me in a personal way just how big the kingdom is, just how big the church is, and how different we are throughout the world, and yet we're all a part of one body. It's a m- miraculous thing. It's a wonderful thing. Why would God do this? Why would God make us this way? Why would he use the human body We are all members of one body, different members, one body. Why would God use the human body to represent the church family? The human body, a living organism made up of different but interrelated parts that are dependent on each other and subject to failure. That's what the body is. Over time, interrelated parts that are dependent on each other and yet subject to failure. In his infinite wisdom, God has given us lots of people that not only look different than we do, but think and act differently. They have different skill sets, different dispositions. And I know you, some of you guys well enough to know different things that make you irritable. We're tempted to maybe view this as a nuisance or a pain, but it's actually the glory of the body. It's the glory of the body that we're so different, yet so bound together. We actually are strengthened by variety. It's a glorious thing. Do not resent that we're all different members in one body. Do not be tempted to go and form your own ghetto within the church of people that think like you and come from the same sort of background that you come from. That's not why God created the church. God could have made it homogenous. He didn't for a reason. The church is a family that consists of many different members. That's the first thing. The second thing is the church is a family that has a rule to live by. Every family has rules that they live by. Each of you has rules. Some of them are stated and clear. Some of them aren't aren't stated so clearly, but are understood. Some families, there's rules to live by that are healthy and promote unity and joy. In other families, the rules that they live by produce bad things. They're unhealthy. But everyone has rules that we live by, expectations that we hold ourselves to, we hold those under our care to, and in the church family, we have a rule to live by, and we didn't make it up. This is not something we have constructed. God has given us his word, and he said to his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, you'll keep my commandments. These words are for us today just as much as they were for the disciples when Jesus spoke them. And notice that Jesus doesn't say many of the things that he could have. He doesn't say that if you love him, you'll bask in the doctrine of grace or that you'll revel in the gospel or that you'll be able to recite your favorite psalm. That's not what he chooses to tell those who are close to him. If you love me, this is what I'm going to see in you. This is what you'll do. He says, if you love him, you'll keep his commands. Our desire to love Christ and to be loved by him in return should be in harmony with a love for his commandments. It's the kind of thing we read about in David's psalms all the time. He's meditating on the law of the Lord. He's rejoicing in God's goodness to him through the commandments and what they've done to him and for him. His his word is our rule to live by. So first, the family consists of many diverse members. Second, the church family has a rule to live by. Third, the church is a family that needs fathers. Church is a family that needs fathers. Listen how the apostle describes his ministry to the church in Thessalonica. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would to his children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul. The church needs godly fathers to lead her. Men who will be courageous, men who will be selfless, men who will be knowledgeable of the scriptures and discerning, men who are willing to give God's yes and his no, affectionate, and tender-hearted. The church needs fathers like this. And listen, we are all living in a culture that is shaped by fatherlessness. Last year, as of 2020, one out of four children grew up without any sort of father in their home. That's any father. That's not an adopted father. That's not a foster dad. That's any father. And there are a lot more who are growing up in homes right now who had fathers that were fatherless, or who have fathers or father figures that aren't representing what fatherhood is biblically. We, as a culture, need fathers, and this needs to start in the church. The church needs fathers who are going to follow Paul's example of fathering. And so, men, I want to ask, are you a father? You don't need to be married and have children to be a father. The apostle Paul wasn't married, and yet, He says to these people, as a father would his children, so I have nurtured and challenged you. Are you a father? Does your fatherhood venture outside the home, or is it confined to the walls of your house? When was the last time you exhorted or encouraged or implored someone, seeking that they would walk in a manner worthy of God? Can you think of a time, the last time you maybe went to someone here, And as a father, not out of pure anger, not out of resentment, not out of selfishness or any of the other things that sometimes motivate us to get up in somebody's grill, but as a father went to someone else in love and did this. That's Paul's example. That's what the church needs. For those of you that are younger, is it something you're working toward? Is it something that's on your radar is it is Paul's example something that you aspire to when you're young in life I know it takes some time to develop these things but is it something that's even on your radar the church needs fathers it consists of many diverse members the church is a family with rules to live by the church needs fathers fourth the church family needs mothers Just as a family needs fathers, it needs mothers as well. Many are familiar with uh, Titus chapter 2. In in Titus chapter 2, it says this. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, but teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. Now, I get it. It's, it's a hard sell if I was going to walk into a room and ask which one of you wants to be the old woman. Honestly, you know, we read this sort of thing and all of you are still thinking, I'm on the other end of that spectrum. I'm on the other end of that spectrum. I'm on the young woman's side. But Scripture is clear that there is a need for older women to serve as mothers in Israel. In 2016, I think it was, we had eight sermons focused on mothers in Israel. Women who knew the Word of God, who stood on it, who declared it, who were wise. And um, man, Scripture is full of elevating women who are this sort of woman. The church needs mothers. The church needs mothers so that, so that this sort of relationship can happen as we see in Titus chapter 2. Younger women, there is a need for you to be humble and to ask for help, to be teachable and grow in wisdom so that when you're no longer a young woman, because it's going to come for all of you one day, you can be an older woman who has this great purpose and this great calling. The church needs mothers. So the church is many members. We have a rule that we live by, we need fathers, we need mothers, the church is a family that's exclusive, and maybe you'll lurch at that a little bit. What do I mean the church family is exclusive? Well, listen, I hope that my family is generous and gracious and loving to our neighbors. The people we live around in Waterville, I hope they know us as a family that's benevolent, that's kind, that's thoughtful. And I hope that that's the case for you as well. But listen, here's the thing, we're all exclusive. Every single one of us is exclusive with our families. We don't treat everyone the same. We don't hold unilateral standards across the board. We don't love the kid down the street for as much as I love him. I really do love him, he's great, and he eats lots of meals at my table. But I don't love him in the same way that I love my own children. Because they're family, and there are differences there. Similarly, the church doesn't treat insiders and outsiders exactly the same. It doesn't blur the lines until differences become unintelligible. Inclusivity is the mantra of our day, and yet Jesus is clear that his purpose in coming wasn't to unite, but it was to divide. And that didn't stand in opposition to him loving and being gracious and welcoming and being hospitable and calling out to people to come. Those who are weary, heavy, laden, and I'll give you rest. This is what Jesus says. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. From now on, five members in a household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter-in-law and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Excuse me, I almost read daughter-in-law against mother-in-law twice <laughs> in that list. Division, division isn't inclusive. What Jesus is saying is that his message and his mission purposefully divided, and he was unapologetic about that fact. He taught everywhere that if we weren't willing to hate our father and mother, He elsewhere, rather, that if we weren't willing to hate our father and mother, that we were not worthy of him. And that's a pretty exclusive statement to make. What I want to say to us this morning is that as a church family, we cannot be more inclusive than Jesus Christ was. Therefore, the church, at certain points and in certain ways, will divide. The family is exclusive. So we're made up of many members. The church is a family with rules to live by. We need fathers, we need mothers, the church is a family that's exclusive, and next, the church is a family that is inclusive. The church family is not to be elitist. We are not to be a secret society. Jesus didn't teach that we were to hoard the truth and keep it to ourselves and hide it under a bushel basket. Much to the contrary, he taught his disciples and he teaches us that we have the light of the world and we are to reveal it and shine it to others. Jesus commissioned his church to carry the good news to the nations, calling them, calling them to the light of the gospel. And in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, it records that the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice how Jesus is inclusive here. He doesn't say, go and make disciples of some nations. He says, all nations. The church is going to grow. And it has grown. In the book of Acts, we read these miraculous stories. After Peter is done preaching, we're told that there were 3,000 people that were joined to the church in a single day. And that's wonderful growth that should be celebrated and rejoiced in. It's a good thing. Jesus says, cast seed everywhere. He doesn't say, you be the judge. He doesn't say, you look at the ground and you determine what you think, and if you want to throw a little cup out there, do so. He says, cast seed and see what I do. The church is inclusive. We are not elitist. You don't have to be somebody to join this family. So we have many members. We have rules to live by. We need fathers, we need mothers, we're exclusive, we are also inclusive. The church is a family that forgives. The church is a family that forgives. In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, we're told not to sin and not to give the devil an opportunity. Then Paul goes on to name a number of specific sins in that chapter. He says, don't go on stealing. You shouldn't steal. He says, Don't go on sinning with your mouths. There should be no unwholesome talk coming out of your mouth. He says, Root out bitterness, root out envy, root out your anger. Then in the last verse, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This is an important lesson to learn. In Paul's words here, I want to point something out. There is an explicit and an implicit message that we're supposed to, and teaching, that we need to grab hold of. He has explicitly told us a couple of things. One, do not sin. Do not sin. He also has explicitly told us to forgive one another. The implicit message between those two is that even as we fight our sins we will sin against each other. And it's not going to be all that irregular. So when we sin, we should confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. When we've been the ones sinned against, we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. The church is a family. And I'll let you in on a little secret. In the family, you sin against each other often. I probably sin against my wife and my children more than I sin against any of you. Why? Why? Because we are a family. We're together. We're around each other. Proximity contributes somewhat to that. In a family, you are going to sin against each other. And so, when there is sin, there must be forgiveness that's asked and forgiveness that's granted. Honestly, it's not just that we have to forgive either. We don't just have to forgive. The amazing thing is that we have the ability to forgive. That's the amazing thing. Forgiveness is not just a responsibility. It's a gift. We have the ability to forgive because Christ has forgiven us. That's not something that any other religion in the world has. We love because he first loved us. We forgive and have the capacity to know what forgiveness really is because he has forgiven us. And so it is a duty. It's a command. It's something Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brother, I won't forgive you. So it is a command. It has an edge. He's been very clear with us. But it's actually also a gift, something to be rejoiced in. It's so good for us. It's good for us to ask for forgiveness, and it's good for us to forgive other people. We'll talk about it more, but it is such a wonderful thing. So we have many members. We have a rule to live by. We need fathers. We need mothers. The church is exclusive. The church is also inclusive. The church is a family that forgives. And eighth, the church is a family that is hospitable. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing, or literally, the word is pursuing, hospitality. To be the church that Jesus calls us to be, we must... Pursue hospitality. If we look at what Paul's saying here, he doesn't just tell us to practice hospitality in a vacuum. If you had your Bibles in front of you and you're looking at this passage with me, you would recognize that it's, it's resting upon the central command of this passage at the very beginning where he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And so all the things that he listed after that, ending with this, this statement that we are to contribute to the needs of the saints and pursue hospitality or rather contribute to the needs of the saints pursuing hospitality inferring that hospitality is one of the ways which we contribute to the needs of the saints these things are all pointing back to the very idea that we love one another that we're devoted to one another we will pursue hospitality if we love one another now I understand there are some of you right now who want to read a verse like this and say, I'm going to go the a la carte route. I'm going to let them over there be hospitable because that's sort of their thing. And I'm going to be the one who builds the brother up. Or I'm going to you know, be the one who writes a note card. Jesus didn't say that this passage is a la carte and that you can pick and choose you know, that each member can kind of take one as they see fit. These things are all things that if we love each other, which is not a, not a specific rule to just a demographic within the church, but the overarching um, uh, rule for all of, all of God's family, that these are the things that we will want to do. And notice also that Jesus anticipates it, hospitality being something that doesn't necessarily just flow out of us because he says pursue. It's not something just, it doesn't say ooze hospitality, right? Some of you ooze hospitality, and that's a great thing. For others of us, we need to talk with our spouse and make a list of people that we want to have into our home and then look at the calendar and select dates and then go to church, and it's, 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 it's more like that. That's okay. That's pursuing hospitality, and that's something for all of us. For the Christian, hospitality is a way of life. It doesn't just, it it just make sense if you love someone that you'll want to be with them. Isn't it obvious? Now, there's a, there's a family that lives in a home down the street from here. And uh, they, a few years ago, built a house in St. James Woods after the father got a promotion at work. The house is a blessing because now they have the space they need. They'd really outgrown their old one. And they're grateful to be where they are now. They are a great family. They, they really love each other. One of the great things about this house in particular is that each of the kids now has their own bedroom. It's a real answer to prayer. Now they don't have to share space. They all have their own areas for their own toys. In fact, they do a lot less fighting now that they play in separate rooms. They really love each other. The mother really likes the house too. It's got one of those things she's always wanted, a big old kitchen with a double wide fridge. And that fridge comes in really handy because she can store three weeks' worth of TV dinners in that fridge at one time. And that's really helpful because now the kids can just slide down the stairs, rip open that fridge, grab whatever version of the three TV meals she has bought and stocked in there, throw it in the microwave, and be upstairs back into the rooms in just a few minutes. They don't really have to interact. That's nice, but they love each other. They've never gone on a vacation together, but they did recently use the money that they might have spent on a vacation, and they bought everyone in the family new iPhones. They also set up a Netflix family plan, so they're not confined to watching TV in the living room together anymore. They really love each other. Last year was the parent's 25th anniversary. They really love each other, so there was some talk of taking a trip to celebrate. She wanted to go to Venice, and he wanted to go to Southern California. So they did, each on a separate ticket. They really love each other. But can a family that really loves each other love each other without the desire to be together? Is that real love? It's the same in the church family. It's the same here. We are to be hospitable. So one, we have many members. Two, you're going to remember these by the end. Two, we have a rule to live by. Three, we need fathers. Four, we need mothers. Five, the church is a family that's exclusive. Six, the church is a family that's inclusive. Seven, the church family forgives. Eight, the church is a family that's hospitable. Ninth, the church is a family that protects each other. At the end of Peter's first letter, he writes to the elders and he says this, He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's protection in the church family. Throughout Jesus' teaching, he frequently warns of what? He warns of wolves, false shepherds, enemies that will try and creep into the fold by a different way so that they might take a, lure away the sheep of God he warns about these people he also in addition to outside predators reminds us again and again the reality that sheep are not very smart one of the ways he reminds us of that is his painful painful uh, conversations with the disciples and you know remember i said this to you why oh, please, I just told you this last week. You know the interactions where you think, come on, guys, you're the 12, you should get this already. Jesus knows our weakness. And so he reminds us, of, he teaches of, of predators, of wolves, of people that try and creep into the, to the sheepfold and harm the sheep. And he also, throughout his ministry, points out, maybe passively, the reality that we aren't necessarily the smartest of people. We do dumb things. We make dumb choices. We think we can get over the ditch, and we jump and we wind up headfirst down in it. We need someone to pull us out. Thankfully, Jesus has called undershepherds to care and protect the family of God. He's called undershepherds to this work. And not only do we have the leader's protection, we also have each other. We also have each other you know, the, the, the reality is, I'll, I'll just tell you a brief story. Um, we were a few weeks ago driving in Montenegro, and um, we were in the middle of the mountains, and it was one of these shepherd scenes, you know, I, I, you've probably heard about them before, but we heard all these bells ringing, and um, we, we were in our car, and all of a sudden we noticed that coming at us on this one-lane dirt road was probably, I don't know, 350 sheep, something like that. And in front is the shepherd, and he's got his staff, and he's making this noise with his mouth and, and kind of banging the stick on the ground as he walks. And then there's just this huge herd of sheep following after him, and so we pulled over to the side of the road and sort of came around our car. And, 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 um, and honestly, a couple of the things that I want to point out from that, that scene stick out to my mind in relation to what I'm saying right now is the sheep helped each other actually. The sheep sort of were a guiding force to each other. They had a shepherd out in front leading the way, right? So the shepherd wasn't going to lead them toward a waterfall, wasn't going to lead them toward a ditch, wasn't going to lead them toward a a fence that had all gnarly barbed wire in it so the sheep would get all caught up. He was leading the way down the, the, the road, And yet, the sheep, it was very clear, all sort of helped each other along too. You know, you see some of the bigger sheep coming alongside the smaller sheep and keeping them sort of in the roadway. It was a really cool thing to see. And at the end, a little boy, presumably the shepherd's son, on his bike, you know, just leading up the rear in case any stragglers fell behind. It was a really cool scene because you have the shepherd, you have the shepherd's son, and you have all these sheep sort of helping each other find their way down the road from the pasture back to the barn where they presumably lived. And then it was neat, we got to drive through all their manure for the next two miles. (laughs) That was striking. (laughs) But this is the way the church, uh, Jesus uses the analogy of sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd. He says that we are the sheep. He says that there are predators that are going to try and get in to harm the sheep. And he's given the church under shepherds to keep us safe. And he's given us each other to keep us safe and in balance. We need each other. There's protection in the church family. A good family watches out for each other. You know it. You can tell a good family by seeing if they're loyal to each other. You can see how if they protect one another. You can tell a lot about a family by watching the children and how they interact when they're out and about. I'm having a flashback right now of a time when I was down on the ground and my Siblings tried to jump me while they had the chance, and I'm thinking that works against my analogy. But there are good families that you know have those incidents too. (laughs) Uh, But you you see it, you see it, and the church is the same way. The church is the same way. There's protection in the church. 10th, and finally, so recap: we have many members. We have a rule that we live by. In the church family, we need fathers. We need mothers. We will be exclusive. We are to be inclusive as well. We will forgive each other. We will be hospitable. We will protect each other. And finally, tenth, we're getting ready for a big family reunion. All of history is going to culminate in Jesus bringing his church back to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the message of the gospel. That's the message of the New Testament. We're all going to be gathered together in one time, in one place, and we will worship before the throne of heaven. Again, in Sunday school class earlier this morning, my dad made the point that we aren't just living beings, we are immortal beings. Meaning, we have a birth, there is a time where we did not exist, but there is never a time after after being conceived where we will cease to exist. We will go from this world into the next world at death. We live immortally. And we are going to the new heavens and the new earth where we will be gathered in one time and place to worship before the throne of God forever. That's, that's the message of Revelation. Time and time again, it doesn't matter the way you read Revelation. There are various ways to read it. But one of the things that is very clear is that heaven is going to be a place of worship before the throne of God, of rejoicing, of fall, falling down before God, and casting our crowns at his feet. There will likely be other things beyond that, but that is, the, that is something that is very clear all throughout John's, the chapters that John records. There's a scene described at the end of John's Revelation. I'd like to read just a bit of it to you. It's from Revelation chapter 19. And it says, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Amen. That is the future of Christ's church. The bride has made herself ready. The bride that Jesus purchased with His blood and made beautiful has made herself ready. That is the culmination. As a church family, our weekly worship, what we do here every Sunday morning is an is in anticipation of this great reunion. Week by week, we're training our bodies to bow before the throne of God. We're training our hearts to love His word. We are training our voices to sing His praise. We're training our stomachs to enjoy His feast. We're getting ready for a family reunion. So this morning, if there's an overarching thing that I want you to remember, that I want all of us to have set into our heads, It is that the church is the family of God. It is the family of God in all of these ways. We have many members. We have a rule to live by. We have fathers and we have mothers. We are exclusive and inclusive. We forgive. We are hospitable. We protect each other. And we are headed toward, we are preparing for, a big old family reunion. Now, I've worked in the last... 35 minutes to sketch out what our church should look like and how we are to act and treat one another and week by week now through the rest of the summer we are going to be taking a closer look at each of the things that I've mentioned in brief this morning. That's going to be how we handle the summer but right now as we close I want to take a moment and I want to ask you are you a part of the family? The church is the family of God are you a part of the family? This might be the first time you've attended church, or maybe this church, or maybe you've you've been a regular part of church life, You've, you've grown up in a church, regardless, the question is the same. I want to ask you, are you a part of the church family? And if you're not, and there are some here that are not this morning, God is inviting you. God is welcoming you to His family. You might be thinking, ah, sure, but if you knew me, if you knew the things I've been involved with, if you knew my past, you wouldn't be as likely to welcome me in. No, no. All of us share the same exact story. Everyone here, Scripture gives all of our backgrounds in a phrase, and that is we were dead in sin and without hope in the world, but God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. We all share the same background. So don't think if you knew me you wouldn't be speaking so freely. Maybe some of you here have grown up in this church and you, you feel like you've fooled people for the last 10, 15 years. You've, you've been playing people, you've been dodging. The question is still the same to you. Are you willing to come into the family of God? I want to say... In saying this, this this isn't merely my words. This is is God's word. This is God's call. He's using me, but this is is his invitation. Do you want to come into his family? The the family of God, there's there's nothing better in this life than to be a part of this sort of family. I just want to say there's nothing more wonderful, nothing to rejoice in more than being a part of a family that loves God and whose lives are given to his service who love each other and make it our practice to lay our lives down for the sake of each other. There's nothing more glorious, nothing more powerful, nothing more wonderful. So will you come into the family? That is my question. Come into the family. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for making a way. We thank you for making a way for those that were far from you, who had no thought of you, who were dead in our trespasses and sins. To be drawn near, to see the light shared with us by a friend, from your word, many different ways. But we've heard, seen the light of your salvation, and we've been drawn near. Thank you for bringing us into your family, and Father, as Christians, we thank you that you've given us this family. It's such a blessing. We pray that there would not be anyone here hearing these words who would reject the invitation that you've given. And Father, may we be a family that looks like on this side of the grave, like a representation of the glory that will be in heaven. May we live with this sort of witness and testimony to a world that has so much need. Father, may this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.